Hello. Welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino and with me is Toby Kent. Hi, everyone. Hi, Matt. And before we go any further, on behalf of Matt and me, uh, we're recording this from the lands of the wintry peoples of the Kulin Nation uh, up in what is now northern Melbourne. And we'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. And, of course, any elders who may be listening anywhere in the world. Thanks, Toby, as always. It's actually a topic of conversation now. Our wonderful guest today has led me to reflect on some of our guests that we've already had. And we've had Adriano, we've had Gilbert, and we've had Darren Pereira as well that we've spoken to recently um, that have all had either a story of migration themselves or of being really influenced by their parents' migration to Australia. And I guess um, you've come from overseas and, and you know, I've got an Italian background as well that's really influenced and informed who I am too. And al- although all of those stories have really impacted or all those backgrounds have impacted who we all are as people, we actually haven't spoken to someone that, that has a refugee background. That isn't just a refugee but a – sorry, isn't just a migrant but you – know, Yeah, yeah, so that's right. Someone that – you know, there's so many ways that you can come into this country and some are more potentially filled with uncertainty than others. And, and our guest today is Lizzie Cooth, who was a refugee and had arrived to Australia and has a, a really interesting perspective about that life and, and what it means and something that I've never obviously experienced or had much to do with. And, and to hear Lizzie speak so honestly and openly through this conversation was enlightening and inspirational and I'm really looking forward to bringing this to you all which brings me to a conversation I've had with a young woman recently Toby obviously we know that there's a conflict in Ukraine and um, this young woman is a Ukrainian refugee she was actually from a town a little town near in between Luhansk and Donetsk right in the at the front line of this war and this invasion and she actually enlightened me so much about the history of Ukraine and what it means and, and all the trials and tribulations that the Ukrainian people have had to endure and face with invasion and occupation and that that occupation actually led to the potential destruction of culture and language and, you know, there was policy to actually say that you could not speak a certain language and all of this argument that people have about oh is it really russia anyway or you know these discussions i don't want to get too politically you know too political about the situation i'm not an expert but that's never stopped us in the past true and and this young woman has an informed perspective at least from her perspective which was that we've had to really fight to have a place to call our own and to feel safe in it and all of a sudden both in 2014 in in the region um, that she's actually from in the Donbass area and, and and beyond and Crimea, obviously, to what's happening now, a full-scale invasion. This is impacting people. It's not just this political story that we hear, you know, numbers and and the money going from nations around the world, you know, to allow Ukraine to actually to fight this war. But it's well beyond that to what's happening on a personal level. And, and you know, this young woman that I won't obviously name spoke about her experiences and really made made me um, very emotional speaking to her, which was she was about to go off to school on one morning and her mother stopped her and said, you can't go to school today. 
an invasion's just been announced and they're on their way. So off they they head to their bunker and, you know, bombs are, uh, are dropping and she returns to a house that's no longer standing and her cat has been killed. You know, these little things that you don't think of but your your pet that you love, that you hold dear, is gone. Your, your home with your photos and your the things that you've created are gone and and then she had to flee and, and the people that she knew and loved had been, you know, sexually assaulted or killed um, in the process of this escape and finally she made her way to Australia and she's not only is her journey inspiring and her story inspiring because of what she had to endure but who she is today. I've never heard someone say how lucky they are more often when where's the luck in all of that, you know, like mm. but, but she considers herself lucky to have survived and to have been able to be welcomed here in Australia. Um, and, and she has felt welcomed. And she's felt welcomed and she loves, yeah. loves, loves being here in, I mean, she'd rather be at home in a safe country that, with a house that's still standing, but she feels welcomed and, and loved and respected. And, and that's not the experience for everyone though. And we're going to explore some of those things today. But I think that the message I want to get across is that I think when we hear people's personal stories and look people in the eye, you can't do anything but care and feel connected to that person. And maybe this conversation that we're going to have soon can can help some people, you know, maybe feel that connection and, and want to do more to expand their mind about what's happening around the world. Yeah, and that's why I'm about to do it again. One of us always does it. Someone someone should stop us. But anyway, I'm about to take us down a, a darker path again. But that's why leaders and people who encourage the worst atrocities uh, around the world always dehumanize. Uh, in Rwanda, it was the talking about ridding of the cockroaches in the same way uh, under the Nazis. Again, it was all about dehumanizing because, as you say, if you, when you look someone in the eye, it's hard not to connect. And uh, I loved the conversation with Lizzie. She came across so well. Um, really looking forward to everyone hearing her story. For me, it's interesting. We were talking with my dad in Series 3, Episode 10, and he touched on it, but, you know, my grandparents, uh, on dad's side, his dad's mum, were refugees from Vienna, so Jewish Austrians who fled to New York. And I've been... I've had a remarkably privileged life. I've been very fortunate, and I think it's only as I've become an adult and work with people from different backgrounds and understood not just the immigrant story but that I've become to have such a profound respect for people who are able to pick themselves up following the most harrowing of circumstances and frankly just really uh, amazed by the ability of people just to get on with life after their, their lives have frankly been shattered. Uh, so that's impressive in and of itself. I think I hadn't, as I say, until reaching a bit more maturity, understood why this would stick with you. You know, again, my grandparents were just my grandparents as a kid. So when you see them, you're like, it's just grandma or whatever. You don't necessarily say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you have the guts and the tenacity to have made a life in this other place after everything you knew was destroyed. 
So it's only now as I've got old, maybe having children and seeing my own family and beginning to go, goodness, what would I do? Mm-hmm. That I started to do it. And then the third element, which is where we'll flip to Lizzie now, but instinctively I feel it must be a, almost a disproportionate number of cases in people who just don't just make a life somewhere else but stand up and thrive and make a difference. Uh, and for me that's where this conversation with Lizzie was so uplifting, that along with her just coming across as a wonderful human. So on that, if you're happy to, a slip to Lizzie. Lizzie Cuth. Lizzie, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Hello, thank you for having me. Lizzie, to get us started, could you uh, give our audience a little bit, a bit of the potted bio of you, probably a little bit of a professional um, history of what, you know, you've done in the past and what you're doing now? Absolutely. I came to Australia back in 2005 with my grandmother and two younger siblings and our cousin. We fled war to one country, um, of those who haven't heard of Sudan. So Sudan's been going through civil war for many, many years and many, many Sudanese have been scattered across the globe. Um, Majority have been living in refugee camps, some in East Africa, others, you know, like myself, went to Egypt because it was closest to where we were at the time. Um, So I made Australia my home and I... Just like any other young person coming to a new country as a 13-year-old with absolutely no word of English, the only thing I was ever thought, taught was um, chair, window, table. I mean, you'd imagine. I attempted at some point to, in my mind, start a conversation with those things that I learned before coming to Australia. And then when you then in the country, you realise whatever you were taught is just, it's thrown out of the window because there's no way anyone in their right mind can start a conversation with chair, window. (laughs) So it was just really me just looking at people and not really knowing what's going on. And I remember feeling so frustrated to not be able to understand or speak. And so I think for me, looking back in those early years, yeah, I would say it was really challenging language-wise. And then years later, it was also about identity and sense of belonging and other things that really, I guess, shaped me and, you know, and made me who I am today. And partly it's because I just threw myself in so many different endeavours. And I think for me, the desire came from a place of wanting to find my own voice. And because, like I mentioned earlier, growing up as a young person in refugee camps, you lose who you are, you know, you are uprooted from your home country and you're you growing up in a place where you know you don't belong. It can be either bad or negative, but I think for me it was challenging mostly. Uh, but I, I had a really great role model, my grandmother, who after losing my mum tragically at the age of five, she took us on and she's uh, my biggest role model. And from very early on she taught me uh, hard work. Um, this is a lady who you know, before all the wars and everything else, she was known for being really wealthy. Um, She had the biggest farm. Uh, She's known for housing people that were traveling in the neighboring areas. So 
she's always been an entrepreneur and I saw firsthand uh, the importance of being able to provide for your family. And, you know, she was like our rock um, despite challenges, despite, um, you know, some of the racism we faced, she's managed to put food on the table. So for me, I think uh, I've learned these values as a child and I sort of just took them on as I became an adult and threw myself in so many fields, you know. Uh, I started my journey, I guess, finding my voice when uh, I learned, started learning a little bit of English, uh, started understanding what was going on, what was being said on the news, and just felt that I didn't really agree with, with the way we were being portrayed. Uh, you know, I'm a South Sudanese young person, and a lot of the time things that were said on the media impacted me directly. Uh, I, I remember when I was in year nine, you know, I was required to, as part of year nine, you have to go and do like a work placement. And I remember struggling to just have someone, you know, give me that opportunity. And I've missed out. I couldn't find work placement as part of my year nine. So that was a really, can be disadvantages because, you know, when you, those are the only ways where you can put your, you know, your, your foot on the door and, and, and open up employment opportunities. So I kind of had to really maneuver my way around and didn't want to give up, didn't want to feel like, you know, um, I realized also very, very early on that the fate of my life is essentially in my hand. And the reason why I knew that was because of my experiences. Uh, some of the things that I've gone through have taught me really uh, to return to the root of myself. And so when things got really hard, I decided I'll just volunteer and didn't really know that volunteering would open up a world of opportunities for me. It was just mostly really I deeply wanted to engage. I wanted to be part of the wider community. I wanted the wider Australia to see me for who I was, not to project certain views or, you know, certain ideologies or, you know, their fear, you know, because, you know, I stand out and pretty dark. There's no way, you know, I'd be in a room and no one stares. And it's something that I've gotten used to. I realised it wasn't a thing that was going to... So it's you kind of just come to a place where you just accept that, you know, people will stare. You kind of just make peace with it. Uh, and that's reality. And, and I don't share this feeling. I've learned to own it in another way. You know, it used to be a thing that made me uncomfortable to where... You know, I know people will kill to get that type of attention that I'm getting right now. <laughs> so I'm just getting attention for no absolute reason. So I walk in, uh, you know, there, there are times where I'm, I'm getting stared and, and someone compliments me. And there are other times where, you know, I, a person will stare and just absolutely have no expression. So, you know, it's hard to, to determine, you know, it's hard to work out exactly what they're thinking. Uh, but it, so it came with me knowing myself and, and really also just understanding that my difference shouldn't necessarily be something that would be a barrier for myself. And I think what made made it things possible for me, it's, you know, differentiating um, the idea that in order for me to succeed, people need to accept me. I realise it's actually the other way around. I've got to accept me in order to succeed. And that was a really relief for me. Like it, it made me realise opinions of other people, people's beliefs, essentially what really mattered was my beliefs 
about what I thought was true. And, and and so for me, I started using that voice, that understanding, because I was coming from a place of knowing myself and sharing uh, my experiences and just really being a voice in, in the local community. And I was fortunate that um, I met a young person who at the time was doing her work placement as part of her degree. And we became close friends. Um, her name is Kate Kuhlman. Uh, to this day, she's my soul sister. And I remember meeting her for the first time and she's like, hey, you, everyone, come together. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, oh, my God, not another white saviour. Please don't tell me you're coming here to solve our problems. <laughs> you know, and then she kind of looks at me, but that was my way of judging her. I didn't actually say that in those exact words. I just kind of looked at her like, like, get out. Like, <laughs> I'm not really with it. You don't understand what I'm going through, you know. And she's, I remember just her saying, thinking, oh, I remember her saying, you know, if you don't want to be part of this, you're free to leave. And I remember just realizing, wow, I actually appreciated that kind of frankness. I appreciated her realness. And and for me, that's where we connected. I realized, okay, this is someone who truly cares about um, raising awareness and then sharing some of the challenges, you know, a lot of the African kids were having in my local area and and she was someone with knowledge and who would mobilize us and and I felt I wanted to be part of it and it didn't matter whether she wasn't from my community I realized you know she deeply cared about these issues and she's a person like me and so I'm like you know what this is a really good opportunity for me to work with this person and other young people to really raise our voices together and that's how my advocacy work started so it was back in 2008 uh at um uh, Noble Park Youthlings, because uh, that's where that was usually where I socialised mostly. Sorry, Lizzie, where, where park? Um, so Noble Park. Oh. So Noble Park is in the southeast of Melbourne. Yeah, and and so that was the start. That was the beginning of my advocacy work. Um, didn't really know what it was, what it would lead to years on, but it was just something that I felt was right and that I felt like I needed to be a part of. So we formed a youth committee uh, where we would come together after school, uh, discuss um, ideas, come up with new projects. And, and really, I think our aim was to really, was to change the image of the area. And not just the image of area, but the image of young people who lived in the area. So we had an issue at the time. Um, there were young men, African descent, who would generally just basically hang around um, the rail line, like, you know, the train stations. And the locals didn't feel safe, you know. And these weren't just young men who were just standing doing nothing. They were visibly drunk and clearly, you know, and you know the uh, perception of safety. (laughs) If something doesn't look right, we don't feel like it's right. And that was the scene, you know. It was personally even me, I know that was something that I felt, you know. I understood why. Um, some community members would feel unsafe, Um, especially, you know, they they were tall. Uh, Even though they didn't bother anyone, they were in their own groups, but they were socialising in large groups. Um, So it wasn't like two or three blocks. These were like groups of young men. And so we're like, okay, we need to really engage these young men, try and get them to utilise the youth space because clearly, you know, the, the red line isn't really a place for, for that sort of thing. You know, people need to get off the train and, and get go to their place safe, feeling safe. Um, and so we spoke to the workers. Uh, it took it took us a while, you know, to, to really 
engage with with these with these guys, you know, because they, they're used to not being, you know, in spaces where they felt. There's just a, I think generally there's a feeling of like, you know, welcoming. <laughs> if you go to a space and you're not feeling you're not welcome, you generally avoid those spaces. And I feel like you know some youth services aren't necessarily a, a vibe where people everyone feels welcome. So we needed to change that. We felt like you know this is the only youth space that's in the area, and we need the workers to understand that you know in order for them to engage these young men, they need to think differently about their approach. Uh, and one of the ways we did that, we ran like a barbecue. Um, sessions and you know because um, they just know in case am. anyone was questioning whether or not you'd fully integrated so we'll have a barbecue <laughs> yes well actually I have to say the reason why we thought a barbecue would be great is because honestly I feel like some of these guys haven't ate for days like I'm, I don't know they just mm-hmm. look like they could eat yeah. some food like I don't know it was just mostly I felt like you know some of them weren't really eating but uh, there's a really serious side then to the idea of doing the barbecue because, I mean, again, anything around food helps people bring people together. But Absolutely. in this case, you actually genuinely thought that there were people who needed the food as well. Yeah, and Toby actually did. Like, people were, they actually started eating. Like, they came for the barbecue, like, mm-hmm. you know, and then while eating, we started talking. You know, and, and that's a really, and, and, you know, spot on, food does bring people together. And it, you know, before you know it, you're talking about yourself, you opening up, you connecting, you know, you building trust. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that was from a place of really just generally acknowledging that there's a clear issue going on, but we can't be all knowledgeable about it. Like we can't be going, you know, you need this fixing. <laughs> like you've got a problem, you fix it. Well, it's mostly, you know, this is services that could support you you can access it when you need to or where you feel you can. Uh, and, and that was what that was about, you know. And, I mean, that, I was 16 at the time. Um, and But for me, I think that really gave me a sense of empowerment but mm-hmm. also a sense of belonging. Uh, I felt connected to not only other young people, but I felt hopeful, you know, because every time I used to go there, it, it, it was dreadful sight. I was really... It hurts my feeling seeing people that I went to language school with mm-hmm. clearly, you know, um, leading a path that I felt would lead to early morality. For me, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a question of right or wrong, but it was a, it was a con- mostly concerned for me, concerned for well-being and and for their future. Because for me personally, like I look back to the reason why I came to Australia, uh, and um, I always remind myself of the fact that. Um, a lot of sacrifice was made. My grandmother went through a lot of challenges to bring me where I am today. And so I feel a sense of responsibility to, to, to always remember that. And I feel somewhere along the journey, people forget their past. I just have a strong conviction that when you have a sense of identity, even when things get tough, you will remind yourself why it's important to keep pushing, why it's important to, to do your best, you know, with whatever you've got. So I think for me, partly was also that you know it, it didn't. It, I felt like um, I felt like these guys betrayed who they were, mm-hmm. but that was my personal opinion. You know, I was just so struck. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. it bothered me, and so, I didn't want to let it be like that. So, why do you think that might be for for some of these people uh, that were acting in that way or behaving? You know, gathering in groups and maybe forgetting their past. Do you think it was? 
the pain of maybe their journey, it was just easier to forget it and get into groups and just find a new community where you're able to forget maybe some of your past, some people that you might have lost or the home that you've lost and find your own an identity, even though it's not one that maybe you wanted to celebrate necessarily. Um, yeah. But they were looking for an identity and maybe trying to avoid that painful um, rediscovery of who they they were and who they like really wanted to be. What, what were some of the barriers that you saw that they were facing? Yeah, look, um, well, thank you so much, Matt. Um, these are really great barriers you mentioned because some of them were true, uh, especially with coping. Uh, as I mentioned, for many, not all of us came to Australia of age that we could simulate. <laughs> well, some came and they were already adults and for many, especially those who came who were adults and having no language skill, you know, no barrier education, and then suddenly they have to pay bills It's just, and they can't find jobs. It can be a real challenge for someone. You know, you've got family to feed. So things like that can be challenging, and, and I know people have shared with me uh, some of their reasons for, uh, and they're not, proud of themselves, but they just found themselves coping in that way, you know, drinking. Some have even drank themselves to death. So, you know, when you start off, for others, they start off as just socialising, especially with the younger one. They're just socialising because alcohol is easily accessible. And because in, in our culture, especially those of us who grew up back home, I, alcohol is, isn't accessible to young people. It's a thing that people drink when they're old. You know, like an elderly woman, for instance, or elderly man. But if you're like young, or you have family to like raise, it's like a it's like an awful thing. Like people will not accept it. Your family will not accept it. Mm -hmm. So you, we don't. It's not a thing that we do. You know, and so here you've got young kids getting into alcohol because in Australia, alcohol is acceptable. It's a social thing. You know, you go to your friend's party and everyone is drinking. Now. The difference is, you know, I'll go back to my mate, Kate. Kate grew up in a, in a family home where people were taught to drink safely very early age. You know, you know that there's a limit to how much you should be drinking. And you know that drinking isn't just like you get you drink to get drunk and you just you drink to cope. It's, it's, it's a social thing. It's a thing that you do when you're eating, something you do when you're with friends, but there's a limit to it. Then you've got people that come from my country with no knowledge about the standard of drinks, you know. And so if they go to a party, someone fills, you know, the red cup because, you know, you don't really have those fancy cups that measure your alcohol. You just have a plastic cup. They fill it. They don't, you know, I don't think a lot of them at the time knew of the impact of alcohol, except, you know, you get drunk. It's quite fun. You're enjoying your life. Who, who wouldn't want to, you know, live their best lives? And, and then it turns out, it, you know, it doesn't, isn't really that great in, in the long run. And before you know what you know, it becomes an addiction because certainly um, things aren't worth looking up, you know. You're not able to get a job. I find for some they just fell through the cracks and because I know some that have really tried, tried to get their life around and just hasn't worked out. Uh, but I know that alcohol and drugs, are a major issue in my community and our cause, cause of, you know, early morality, but also 
um, challenges in terms of family relationships. Because as I mentioned, for us, alcohol is a, is a bad thing. If your mom knows you get drunk, you try to avoid her. Like you don't come home. Mm-hmm. You might crash at a mate's place. Like all these things, you know, and go back to, you know, cultural um, differences, you know. Like culturally, men behave differently to women, you know. And so when these young men, as I mentioned earlier, you know, be drunk around the street, their relationship with their family isn't well because the family aren't happy, you know, that they're now choosing to drink. Now, let's say they were Australian family. I'm pretty sure it will be a different outlook. <laughs> they will look at it differently. Because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're a young man, you get into drinking, your family isn't happy with you, you have no home, you become homeless. So all this stuff, like, will just add up to things that will just make your life more and more harder. And the thing about living in Australia is if you don't have a home, you know, if you're homeless, good luck finding a job. So it's like a cycle that really leads to poverty. And for majority of us um, that came to Australia, you know, um, there are those who have tried their absolute best, you know, to build a life for themselves because we're all building from scratch. My grandmother didn't go to school, you know, and I remember being in high school. I remember I was in year 10, and that's when you choose because that's when they pressure you. They tell you this is a very important period of your life. If you don't get it right, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but, you know, you, they need your parents or guardian to help you choose you know, but they tell you you're not smart enough. You from a refugee background. Um, they try and to. Would people actually say that to you? Oh, this is my story. Yes, this is yeah. definitely me. I mean, when I was in year ten, everyone was choosing. Um, you know, because when you get into senior years, like year twelve and eleven, um, you'd need to be able to to select which pathway you want to take. Like, I'm so glad that Australia finally changed that system because it, it's a real, it's a system that I felt further put kids in a real tough situation in the long run. Unless you really know that, you know, you want to do VCAL, but VCAL isn't, in the same way BC isn't for everyone, VCAL isn't. For me, I knew very well that I didn't want to do VCAL. I wanted to do VCE. Um, And then when I told them that I want to do VCE, they said, you're not going to be able to manage it. So they were trying to really force me into a pathway that really wasn't for me. And I knew that it wasn't for me. Uh, so I and I fought I fought my way and I eventually I, I ended up doing VCE well. by force. <laughs> yeah, look, if I put my mind to something, uh, you know, I mean, and the excuse was because look, I was also aware, like I knew that, um, you know, I didn't grow up here. Uh, I knew that it was going to come with a lot of challenges, uh, but I just knew I knew that I wanted to do to go to university. I mean, little did I knew that I could still go to university. <laughs> either way like it just felt like if you do VCE you go to you know you go to uni if you do VCAL you go to work mm-hmm. so there was that misconception around you know what it meant and for me honestly because the young the young people that I that did VCAL just weren't engaged at school so I associated that with with VCAL I didn't realize it was their choices <laughs> You know, and I knew that I wanted to be a school. Like, for me, education is very important to me. I remember, like, my grandmother brought me here specifically, you know, not just so I don't get killed or die of hunger, but because she believed that education is important. And I wanted to honour that. You know, I wanted to, to follow that. 
And I knew that kids who were doing BCE were fully, like were, were at school every day. <laughs> and I wanted to be at school every day. So that was how I, like that's how I rationalized my, my decision. It is an amazing story and we may sort of go back and forth with it. But just can you tell yeah. our listeners what you are up to now, uh, the studies yeah. you can achieve and, 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 you know, really impressive activities you've got underway now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, these days I am uh, curving my own niche, the intersection of economics and inclusion and diversity. Uh, I've had the privilege of working in different sectors. Uh, I've, re- I've worked state government, currently working at local government. I've also done a lot of work um, in non-for-profit. I volunteer my time. Uh, last year, I was elected to become Victorian Multicultural Commissioner. It's quite impressive because the work of uh, commissioners, we are the conduit between government and multicultural communities. Uh, we advocate uh, on behalf of multicultural communities, um, government level, but also we ensure that services that are being delivered really cater for our multicultural community. This sits at the very core of my being when it comes to community service. Uh, and it really allows me to connect not just with my community, but also, you know, with other multicultural communities in Victoria. I absolutely love it. Um, I've been in this role since last year and I'll be in it uh, till 2025. So I'm hoping to leave leave. Um, you know, I've got this, it will sound a bit like indulging, like it will sound like I'm a bit grandier and whatnot, but I do feel that uh, my purpose in life really is is to leave a mark that can't be erased. And for me, it's very important because my grandmother left a mark in me and it just isn't the kind of thing that can be erased. And, and it's a very positive thing to leave a person, you know, to give them... You know, just give them this belief that they can do anything. And I think that's what my grandmother gave me. That's the gift she left me. You know, she left me when I was 18, which is why I became my sibling guardian and didn't pursue my education. So in 29, 29, when I was doing my year 12, she was diagnosed with cancer. And, I mean, I remember just being scared because this is someone who was my mum and dad. She was my sister. You know, she was the person I go to when I'm worried, the person that I go to when I'm sick. You know, I, I, I don't remember ever seeing my grandmother so sick. So those were very tough years for me. Mm. But she stayed so strong throughout the whole ordeal. And, and when she pa- finally passed, I remember just being sure that I wanted to keep my family together. And and I think for me, I prioritised that. And and these days, my siblings are all grown. Uh, my younger, my youngest is 27. He lives on his own. He's taking on farming, which is great. I, I'm proud of him for doing that. Um, he loves flower farming, so he works. And you know, he's got plans to return to uni, but at the moment, he's just wanting to make money. So, um, <laughs> you know, I t- I remind him every now and then to you know consider going back to school. But this is my own journey. This is my uh, and I try to remember that everyone's got their own journey. And, you know, if school is something that's important to me, it might not be important to him. Uh, but we have a strong bond. And I think when I go into community, I really try to take that and share that in, with the community. You know, my my views that I really come from a place where 
I listen to people like different type of people, you know, and and they influence what I think. Because, for instance, I used to be very like wanting things to just be perfect, and then when reality hits, you don't give up on that hope, but you become more understanding. Because I think there's there's a there's there's a place where you continue because working in this space, you know, in the inclusion and disability, uh, sorry, inclusion and diversity space, there's a lot of policies that can break your heart. You know, policies that you think to yourself, why would anyone do this, or why would anyone think this would be a good idea? But then when you look back into the history of the whole thing, you realize that person thought that was a good idea, and it came from a place of actually wanting to make a difference. And so I think through my involvement in various uh, activities and listening to different people, I've learned that wanting to make a difference, it's not about changing everything. But because if you think you're going to change everything, is the new thing you're changing is shocking when you realise in reality it could actually not be the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think I'm just really learning to see where I can really make a difference not with the thinking that i'm going to change everything or whatever i'm going to bring in is better so let me but ask we, uh, an, un, an unfair question yes yes so given all this these wonderful perspectives that you have yeah and not just a clear ambition but uh, a very obvious ability uh, and drive to make things happen yeah. So if you could change just one thing, however grand or small, what would be the ultimate single thing you would change? Okay, to be honest, I because I engage a lot with kids from my community, uh, they, they see me somewhat as a role model, which sometimes I'm like questionable because I'm like, no, <laughs> aspire more. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because, I mean, these days we have unlimited access to so many people. You know, why lower your standard? You know? And I'm saying this not because I think um, low of myself, but because what I've noticed, especially in my communities, a lot of young people that I engage with don't have role models in their lives. You know, I want to expose everyone to great people because it's in exposing you know, it's in connecting with people. You know, it's in building connection that you can really begin to make a difference because it's not made by individuals, yeah. you know. I don't think me personally I'm the key to, you know, to make anything. But really I think collectively whatever is possible is possible. And so for me, if I were to make any difference, would be to really just... I want these kids to really see who they are, like to see their potential, you know, to really know who they are, like their sense of identity, because I feel like that's a difference because mm. I come from a place of knowing who I am. You know, so when I'm met with a challenge, I don't run away from it. I face it. Yeah, so I have one observation and, and I hear what you're saying, Lizzie. I, I think, um, firstly, we shouldn't forget that you're, still pretty early in your career and so in terms of these young people aiming higher you've got plenty of time to get wherever you want to Uh, (laughs) and secondly you're already doing amazing things and I think one of the things that is so important for 
people in communities of any kind is to be able to not just to aim for the stars, as they say, but to be able to reach out and really feel that that change, that next step, that progression is possible. And I think my instinct is you are fundamentally that person who they can see is both aspirational but not so stratospheric yet uh, as to be out of touch. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. You know what? That's that's exactly right. You know, and and that's why I love working with young people. Like at the moment, I work uh, with the city of Greater Dandenong, and I'm a youth worker. Uh, people have always thought I was a youth worker, but I was never a youth worker. You know, in my previous role, uh, I was in events. You know, events management. I was in DNI. Uh, I was doing a lot of different sorts of roles. You know, like engagement. I've done a lot of work in engagement, but not directly with young people. But outside of my paid role, I'm always engaged in my community. I'm always uh, ensuring that I'm accessible yeah. because I've had to raise my own siblings. Like I know the challenges people are facing. You know, I've faced them myself. You know, I'll show you this. I was 19 at the time. Didn't really understand how to manage my money well. You know, mind you, I actually didn't have a proper job to begin with. So I had very little money. I remember standing in front of a magistrate because I couldn't pay my rent. I was due to be evicted. And I remember just standing there and the magistrate telling me, you know, wanting to understand why I didn't pay my rent. And I remember telling them that I didn't have the money. But I also remember another thing, another scenario, you know, where I promised myself that I'll never be in this position ever again that I will never subject myself and my family in that situation, you know, because you could imagine how fearful I was to end up on the street. But that, that was how I saw it, you know, like homelessness. It was tragic. But I didn't want the situation. I, the situation reminded me of how I really need to get, get my things on, on. Like I needed to really get on the game. Like I needed to really to put on my A game. Mm-hmm. Because there's no way, you know, I want to be that broke that I'll end up on the streets. And so for me, it opened up my mind. It made me realize, oh, wow, you know, life is real. Life is about choices. You know, it's about decisions. You know, life is not about pointing at someone else and saying, well, that person didn't give me a job. You know, life is just really like they say. I think Americans say something along the lines of pulling something by your strap. Pulling, <laughs> by the your bootstraps. By the bootstraps, that's yeah. it. So that was me. That was that moment. I'm like, okay, I need to really get it together mm-hmm. and pull up, pull myself up by, by the bootstraps. Yeah. And, and that's just been it from that moment on. From a 19-year-old to me as a 31-year-old today, I'd say my that moment really shaped me. It made me realize, you know, we live in the most wealthiest country. Honestly, people think for you to see yourself as one of the richest people, you need to have, it needs to show in your bank account as your millionaire. I think that's not true. If you see yourself and you compare yourself to the rest of the globe, you realize you're actually one of the 1% of the richest people. I live in the richest country. And I needed to really appreciate that. And I needed to really act like it. And it was my responsibility. So can I just ask, I can see Matt's poised, but I want to ask two questions. So 
all, all linked to that. So it's one thing to have that realization, an incredibly scary moment, I'm sure, on many different levels. Yeah. But another thing to be able to flip it and go, okay, I've been scared, but not everyone has the wherewithal to go, okay, and now I make it count. And it's going to, yeah. uh, you know. And linked, you mentioned a little while ago, you know, this horrible sounding situation where, you know, as a grade nine, you're there, probably pretty excited about, you know, the opportunities to get oh. this placement and and society, this country that's half welcomed you, half kept you at bay, slaps mm. you in the face. Mm. And so I'm just wondering how you put these two things together. You've got the volunteering is obviously a part of the transition, but mm. what, how did you move on from that? initial slap in the face I'm sure it wasn't the first but anyway mm-hmm. the first one we've spoken about to yeah. um that ability to just turn on the on the faucet as it were to, to suddenly go right and now I'm making money what did you do yeah. what changed yeah look I again I return back to the two things that I mentioned earlier the one thing being identity you know really knowing yourself well knowing your history your background you know I had something that I know many Young kids don't have the resilience. And my resilience was built. I built this resilience through my experiences. And the thing about resilience is it's a real, it's a powerful, it's a powerful thing that comes with tough experiences. <laughs> you know, if you have resilience, uh, you could be punched a million times and you'll get up again. And it's because of that resilience you've built that really it allows you to always have the courage to continue that fight because remember there's an end goal here the end goal isn't for me I used to think I needed to be accepted to amount to something until I realized that isn't true what was true is I needed to accept myself to amount to something Um, and so for me to have that shift in mind is because I knew that I deserve a good job I knew that I deserved education. So when I was um, having disagreement with my teachers because they, you know, they believed that I wasn't going to be able to do well. I believed that I was going to do well because I I knew I was preparing myself for it. I knew I was going to be ready for those sleepless nights. You know, in my own country, the reason why there have been civil unrest is because of these reasons. You know, the fighting for rights, the fighting, you know, to be treated with, with justice, to be given equal opportunities. I was born in a situation like that, you know, where in my own country I was a second citizen. Coming to Australia, I didn't come with a mindset that things would be given to me on a silver plate. I, I generally didn't come with that mindset. And when I see myself, I generally don't expect other people to see what I see. Mm-hmm. But I know that it is up to me to shape the the person that you will see or you are seeing or you are engaging with. It came with a lot of different feelings. So, you know, I didn't, it didn't obviously start with me having this understanding. Like it started with me really being angry. You know, I remember when I was a young person, you know, listening to the news, I didn't watch news much because it affected me. It affected the way I engage with other people. When I was angry, I was projecting the anger to other people, you know, people that had nothing to do with it. And you see, uh, and I think that's that's exactly why I said earlier, you know, 
I were to make any difference, I would really want people to always go back to who they are. And the second thing that I mentioned earlier was, again, role modeling, you know, the idea that you need role models. Because I saw there were so many different people. It wasn't just me who came from that experience. You know, there were people that succeeded and others who didn't. I looked at those who succeeded because that was what I wanted. I didn't want the misery. No, I've had enough. Like, I've had enough of misery. Like I've, I've had enough in terms of struggle. Like I don't really love struggle that much. Like don't, I don't actually want it. So I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to get away from it as much as I can, you know, and, and part of struggle is poor poverty. I, my God, I hate poverty. I really do. You know, uh, like I don't want to be, I don't want to disadvantage myself to wind up in the same place I was. In the same my, in the same place my grandmother was, I'm fighting against those things because for me those things what actually matter to me. You know, not being poor, not being you know broken. I'm I'm constantly working on healing because for me that's the kind of life I want. And so when I look at people that are projecting that, you know, not forgetting that they they have challenges because you do, but it's really just striving to be. And I realize in between there's choices. You know, in between, there's decision to be made, and I'm just making decision that I feel will take me to, to that other place that I want to be at. Thanks, Lizzie. Um, extremely <laughs> like profound, and I love the perspective that you have. And what I've noticed that you've talked about a lot is the choices, and that you really need to find who you are before you can make a difference in this world and be the person Absolutely. you want to be. And, and you've sort of talked about identity, community, and purpose, sort of as three pillars that I know that are super important to for happiness and to be, you know, um, what I like to say, you know, aligning who you are and who you want to be and, and you're definitely, you know, doing that. And I just want to have a bit of a reflection before my question here because, um, yeah, there's just so much to touch on. But, yeah, you, you've mentioned those choices all along the way, as Toby said, from year nine and beyond and those lessons that you learned from your grandmother and going through everything that you have and really – I notice in my life, you know, I'm what privilege looks like in a way that people around me and even myself at times fall into a heap, you know, and lack some resilience with small things that can pop up in life that, or at least seemingly small, um, you know, when you see the grand scheme of things and blame the other and and seek out sort of um, it's not my fault or, you know, this happened to me, what, why, 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 you know, this questioning. And you've all along the way have been able to, you know, with really you would have, you would be the perfect person to be able to say, yes, these things have happened to me without me wanting them. Um, I know that you, you lost, you know, your mother early on and then your grandmother and then had to move across the world and and refine that identity and and everything that you've gone through and those challenges along the way, you've been able to stick at it. So, Really my reflection on all of this is hopefully people listening would be able to, you know, somehow think about their role in creating, you know, a really strong foundation of who they are and find their people and find what they want to be. And and I guess my next question is you said you wanted to leave a mark that can't be erased and and Toby sort of got you to touch on that point a little bit. But I guess what is that real clear goal for you? You've got a goal by 2025 at the end of your election cycle there what is it that it it really clearly is that you want to see that's not being erased and yeah yeah, let's just stop there for now 
I won't no, put thank too many you so questions much. at once. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thank you so much, Matt. You you completely nailed it in terms of summarizing all the things that I've been saying. Uh, I almost felt like you've said it better than I could have said it. No, I um, promise you, you didn't. No, <laughs> you said it perfectly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because honestly, to me personally, um, uh, when when I speak of leaving a mark, it's it's about the teaching that you leave behind. You know, it's about the learnings that you impart on others. You know, um, anything that I learned, I made sure I share with my siblings or you know with other young people. The kind of mark that I want to leave behind, I like I said, I believe in choices. You know, I believe that when you empower people to make choices for themselves, people actually wind up making better choices. You know, I'm of the belief that there's so many world problems. I'm studying economics and I do want to become an economist and I'm into policies, you know, because, again, I have that passion to make better social services, to make better, to allow people to have that autonomy over their lives that they are able to make choices. You know, and, and it goes back to education. I've come from a country where women don't have those uh, opportunities. Usually they would go to the guy in the family. You know, I want want a a world where one day if I do have a daughter, I would want her to be able to not be seen as a girl first and foremost, but really as a person, person with a lot of different, you know, different desires, different passions, and be able to just manoeuvre around the world without that thing impacting her choices. And for me, just one single thing, I mean, among so many other things, the fact that I am a female, you know, is a constant struggle because I've, uh, before I can make a choice for myself, I have to convince other people why I'm making this choice. And I know we're running out of time and I'll let Toby um, ask the, the big finale question very shortly. <laughs> yes. But before we do, uh, the, the thing to touch on there is you've spoken a lot about the internal decision-making and choices and being resilient, but then also yes. that the fact that policy and environment that you're in really plays a part as well. Absolutely, it so, does. Yeah, so is it about policies not necessarily, I mean, what's the saying? Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Yes. Um, it's a bit sexist now, isn't it? Teach yeah, a person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, but that idea has to be there for policy makers and and I know that you're um, in that space actually trying to make that happen and being an advocate, yes. not yes. for handouts, not for, you know, cushioning the area and making it an easy pathway but giving people the the skills and opportunities to actually be the person they want to be and that's so important Absolutely. and I think that's yes. a misconception that Australians, uh, not yes. you know, what would you say, the 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 mainstream, you know, potentially not even conservative I'm voter. really interested to see how Matt's going to finish the sentence. Keep going, Matt. I'm trying to think of... I can see yeah, the whole... Getting, getting, I, don't want to, I don't want to implicate... I don't want to implicate a section of society, but there are many people in Australia that are um, probably fearful of new arrivals. Oh, yes. And... Um, fearful of new? Just full stop? Or of arrivals. <laughs> yeah. You know, of new, that's right. Um, of any sort. And, and I mean, I've even seen it. It's not only just white. I mean, uh, English Australians or uh, I saw the fans in Sydney recently, you know, the other day, um, this will be coming out eight weeks later, but the fascist, nasty salutes and fascist um, 
chance at a soccer yeah. game and yeah. you wonder how does this exist in this country even with groups yeah. that were actually mm-hmm. um, yeah. migrants yeah. that had to be accepted too. So it's a, it's yeah. a, it's an interesting one. But there's this misconception that there's handouts going out and people, you know, are missing out because of these handouts, which is obviously mm-hmm. so untrue. And I know it's towards yeah. the end of the conversation for such a big thing to throw at you, but yeah. do you, can you sort of give a a little um, taste of some of the misconceptions that you see and also some yeah. of the the ways that you find that to be either untrue or some of the ways that we can maybe heal that divide and bridge that divide? Yep, yeah. So do you mean as in when a person first comes to Australia um, by handout, do you mean? Oh, well, I'm trying to say that I don't think handouts do exist. I think that um, personally. Yeah, because I'm, I'm honestly, I'm legitimately trying to remember when I was ever given a handout. Yeah, so why is this? I mean, it's there because of people that want to just throw that out to, yeah. you know, give a economic reason rather than yeah. a racial reason for, for hate yeah. in a way. Yeah. But yeah. Um, these misconceptions are there. So do you find yourself having to discuss this on a policy level to people that are decision makers that maybe, you know, you have to uh, clarify their own bias and beliefs at times? Yeah, look, yeah, look I think um, from, from my work, um, I've found that people do have a lot of, like, various perceptions. Um, I do a lot of work with Refugee Council Australia where I go around schools uh, across Victoria sharing my refugee journey and sharing what it means to be a refugee and asylum seeker. And I find often people I find, like, people are learning about refugees and asylum seekers through media. And, and actually... They, they're not hearing stories. You know, they're not connecting the dots. They're not seeing this person as someone who's genuinely fleeing from a war-torn situation. You know, they're seeing this person as seeking a financial opportunity. Whereas it's actually, it's the opposite. It's someone who's given, if there were no reason to flee, I don't think they would flee. Because, you know, these are people that are, doctors in their home country and all of a sudden you know they don't even have the means to to provide for their families so I think to just to start from that understanding you know that a refugee or asylum seeker is someone who's genuinely seeking protection and they've got the right under the UN charter which Australia is sanitary to it so Australia has decided to be part of that and so when a person is seeking asylum here in Australia, they're not doing something that is not right. <laughs> they're actually doing the right thing. And I think people assume that you need to look a particular particular way to be a refugee, which I don't, again, I don't think there's a specific image for a refugee. For the longest time, you know, they use the image of a black kid. But we know that the world, you know, a world refugee if we put it in like a stat, you know, will look different because we know in the Middle East, so many countries there have suffered for many, many years, but we don't hear about it. We don't hear about Yemen situation. So I think for people to really understand, they really need to put down their guard, the, the assumption that it's about money and realize it's actually, it's about life. You know, people have lost a lot. You know, they've lost their livelihood and they just want to survive. It's about survival. And when, when people do come here, just like every other Australian, you then go to school and you go to work and you contribute. You know, I've been contributing 
for a very for a very long time and I don't regret it. I'm happy that I'm able to contribute, that I'm able to support the social system we've got going on. I think it's great. I think it's great for those in need that they're able to get sampling allowance. You know, I think it's great that I'm able to aspire for more. <laughs> so, you know, I wanna if I wanna buy a house, I know that I can work, I can save and 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 I my money is secured. No one is just gonna come and break the bank the next day and steal my money. Like those are the things that are important and are in place because of these policies that we put in place, you know, that to protect us, to protect our properties, you know, to protect our right to uh, to live in a safe environment, but also, you know, to to do more with 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 our lives. In countries where there's war, the only thing you're able to do is to get by, is to survive the next day. No one's got time for a five-year plan. So I doubt it that anyone who's coming in uh, as a refugee have had the chance to think about how they're going to uh, take advantage of all the, you know, financial opportunities in Australia, okay? I think the very first few years, they're literally learning the language. They're, you know, they're just trying to overcome the trauma of actually having gone through that tragic situation. Is it tragic? I've lost family members. Like it's, it's not a situation where you come and you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna rise up to the top. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, you know, every day I'm really thankful that I'm actually that I actually got get to be here and I'm safe. And I think if you look at the history of both migration and refugees mm. around the world, is actually an incredible uh, level of achievement by people escaping in tremendously both difficult not just difficult but as you say tragic situations that yeah. said i still think you're a bit of a standout lizzie uh and, <laughs> um, it does you. however it has got to the inevitable moment in the podcast mm. which is not the end <laughs> but rather, so <laughs> rather as somebody who at this you know frankly young age made this transition to really be become an ongoing activist uh, and representative or advocate, maybe more than an adv- uh, mm-hmm. activist, but advocate representative of your community and others. Mm-hmm. And so in deciding to become that, that part of you, to fulfill that part of you and that to become such a fundamental part of your life, mm-hmm. what was that moment? The moment of clarity when you said, I'm going to pursue this? Mm. I wish it was as the way you put it, you know, it's very, it's like thunder, there's lights going off. It wasn't, you know, it was literally in the moment of my despair, like the moment where I felt all was lost and I remembered my grandmother. Those are my moments of clarity Um, and they occur every now and then. And I'm only grateful that I have a source of, a source that I go back to. I have an image of her. Every morning I go and look at that image. And it's a moment of clarity. That's beautiful. I'm sorry, sorry to touch on uh, such a obviously deep and sensitive point, Lizzie, but thank you very much for your openness. You've been a really wonderful guest. Thank you very much, Toby. Yeah, Lizzie, it's it's been our absolute pleasure to have you on, and and I don't think, um, yeah, Toby's definitely not um, 
joking when he says, you know, that you, you really do, uh, you know, you've uplifted us, you've given us so much um, to think about and new perspectives to explore and and our listeners today will no doubt go away with, um, yeah, new, newfound perspectives and, and hope and dreams and, you know, not only about um, the, uh, the, I guess, the lives of people that are refugees and asylum seekers in this country and around the world, but also their own life and how they can make the right choices to be the person they want to be. So thank you so much for doing that for us. Thank you. I'm humbled by you both. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure just chatting to you both here. You're very kind. Oh, thank you. Thank Thank you, guys. Thank you, Lizzie. We'll be in touch for sure. Cheers. Appreciate your time. All right, you have a good night. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, The biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website moc-pod.com or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.